0: In the wee small hours of the morning, January 26th, 2013, a dolphin entered the Gowanus Canal in Brooklyn. By 6pm, it was dead. Earlier that day, around 9.30am, onlookers had noticed this phenomenon. Dolphins, when they are near the Gowanus Canal, typically stay near the mouth by New York Harbor, where the water is not toxic. But this dolphin had gotten separated from its pod, and was now, sadly, swimming up one of the most poisonous and septic waterways in all of North America. The onlookers, having themselves a little fun, decided to nickname the dolphin Sludgy. As he struggled through the murky water, the amusement that a dolphin was in the Gowanus Canal quickly turned to real concern as they realized the poor creature was bleeding from its dorsal fin and its blowhole and its mouth. The Gowanus Canal is not a healthy place for a living creature to be, It is a Superfund cleanup site. It was the dumping grounds for an enormous amount of industrial waste over decades in New York City. The toxic spill off that is still in the canal is so horrifying that it has been described by those involved in the cleanup as being 10 feet of, and this is the single most repulsive phrase I've ever heard in my life, black mayonnaise on the bottom of the canal. 10 feet of black mayonnaise the dolphin didn't stand a chance. It died in the freezing, toxic morass, alone and afraid, doomed by its decision to swim into the canal, surrounded by gawking assholes who couldn't figure out what was wrong or what they should do. You get that this is a metaphor for Reese Priebus, right? I mean, last week I did the thing about the airplane poop smell. You want to know what? I don't have time for this. This is the show. Welcome to Republican in Exile, a half-hour exercise in self-torture, where I, your sometimes stodgy and seriously soused toast attempts to navigate another week of odiousness that washes out of Washington like high tide on a sea of dirty diapers. I'm Matthew Hedge, and this week we're going to be going over a raft of ludicrousness that has left me (laughs) so frustrated and caused me to drink heavily. Speaking of which, margaritas. Thank God Senator McCain voted against the skinny repeal, because I might have had to have a skinny margarita. I've heard bad things. Speaking of hearing things, the song you're valiantly attempting to ignore is "The Gowanus Canal" by Paulin Storm. You never get a rest in summer or in winter, in the spring or in the fall. You breathe the odors from Gowanus Canal. It's a cheerful little ditty about a toxic waste dump. I kind of love it. If this is your first time listening, I was once a loyal Republican and then Donald Trump got elected president and that went, well, into the canal, frankly. Now I'm a very reluctant Democrat trying to figure out exactly what the hell's going on and expressing my anger (laughs) through this podcast. Yeah, I'm just hoping that one day I'll get to stop because all of this will stop. All of this will stop. It has to stop at some point, right? It can't continue like this. I had enough material for a full half-hour podcast on Tuesday. Tuesday! Tuesday! Every week, I give you a rundown of things that have made me angry, this week's horrors, and then this week's outrage. I give you a little bit of good news, and then I try and leave you off the way to look smart. The song's coming to an end, and that means I have to talk about the 5 billion things that happened this week in this week's horrors. House Republicans have asked Jeff Sessions to appoint a second special prosecutor to look into meddling in the 2016 election by Hillary Clinton, James Comey, and former Attorney General Loretta Lynch. I think perhaps someone should let the Judiciary Committee know that Hillary Clinton lost that election. While we're at it, maybe we could tell Donald Trump that Hillary Clinton lost that election. Oh wait, actually, let's not tell him. Maybe he'll just leave one day and forget and not come back. House Republicans want this investigation for an excuse. If they can show that Hillary Clinton behaved in any way inappropriately during the 2016 election, they feel it will help them excuse any ways Donald Trump behaved inappropriately during that election. Here's the thing. When you defend the president's behavior by claiming that other people have also behaved similarly, and how terrible that is, you're admitting that it's not the behavior that's bothering you, it's the other people, which is the perfect encapsulation of what is wrong with the Republican Party today. They no longer have an ideology, they no longer have a base, what they have is a strong dislike for their opposition. If they had any kind of commitment to ideology, they would have stopped Donald Trump. And they would currently be stopping Kid Rock from running for the United States Senate from Michigan. Kid Rock is not a conservative in any way, shape, or form form. He's in favor of abortion. He's in favor of gay marriage, even though he's also in favor of using a wide variety of homophobic slurs and saying some rather nasty things about gay people. He supports drug legalization, and I'm not just talking about marijuana here. He wants to legalize heroin and crack cocaine and crystal meth. I assume because he would find purchasing these things more convenient if they were legal. His personal life is a mess on par with the greatest of tabloid celebrities. He makes the president look like a dedicated family man, and that's a horrifying thing to say. But he would really irritate an awful lot of very liberal people, and so he's getting a lot of early support in his campaign. And you want to know what? He'll probably win. That's the way we're going right now. Speaking of the steady decline of our civilization, Rolling Stone magazine asked this week, Why couldn't Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, be our president? Aside from the obvious constitutional issues, there is the fact that, and I don't understand why I'm the only person that sees this, he's an enormous creep. He hangs out shirtless in caves. Go, look it up. The man is a vapid, vacuous non-entity who's been getting by on his physical appearance for a very long period of time. As far as I'm concerned, Trudeau is one of the harbingers of the apocalypse. You see, it seems that this world can only produce three kinds of politicians anymore. Either we can have septuagenarian kooks, that is, the Marine Le Pen's, the Nigel Farage's, the Donald Trump's, the Bernie Sanderses of the world. We can have very serious, moderate women who know how to get stuff done but are somehow hated for it regardless, Theresa May, Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, or... We can have inexperienced, empty suits with stunning physical appearances. Macron, Trudeau, and to a lesser degree, Obama. I would say Obama's probably the smartest of those people. But if you don't think the fact that Obama was young and handsome helped him get elected president, um, you're wrong. Among the shirtless pretty boys, inexperience is actually a plus, because if you're inexperienced you have no record for other people to run against, and individuals can project their greatest hopes and dreams upon you, and you haven't disappointed them because you haven't had anything to do yet. Because our modern political era demands that you agree with a set of set cultural issues all the time or be painted as a monster, it is no longer the strong that survive the inexperienced. People don't care if you're tripping over your own pants, so long as you smile and say the right things. Of course, it's not just the pretty boys that benefit from that. I could have very easily been describing Donald Trump there as well. God help us. Speaking of, Donald Trump, earlier this week, unleashed a tweet storm on his own Attorney General Jeff Sessions, saying that he had taken a very weak position on Hillary Clinton's many, many crimes and generally attacking him. Trump's continued humiliation of Jeff Sessions publicly has led many to believe that, well, an ouster is coming soon, which would make lots of people, particularly Republican senators, very, very upset. Chuck Grassley, the head of the Judiciary Committee, went so far as to tell reporters that he would not be scheduling any placement hearings for a new attorney general this calendar year. And Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina said that firing Sessions and Mueller would be a red line in his book, which could destroy the Trump presidency. I don't think Donald Trump actually cares. I think he's going to do whatever the hell he wants. See if he can get away with it. It's worked for him so far. If Trump really thinks that Russia probe is going to get close to home, he's just going to try and clear house and deal with the repercussions later. When the president was not busy cyberbullying the Attorney General of the United States, he was busy bullying the Secretary of Health and Human Services in real life in front of 40,000 Boy Scouts. At what was intended to be a non-partisan, non-political speech in front of the annual Boy Scouts jamboree, the president decided to honor those members of his cabinet who had previously served in the Boy Scouts. Rex Tillerson, Perry from Energy, Zinke, from the Interior Department, the Vice President, and, of course, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price. This is when he started to go off script a little bit. You see, the speech is once again supposed to be nonpartisan. So when he stopped talking about how Dr. Price was a member of the Boy Scouts and started instead to talk about how they were going to destroy Obamacare and start taunting Price about needing to get out there and do the hard work of getting more votes, uh, it seemed a little odd. It seemed even more odd when, after... Trump repeatedly asked Price if they were going to have the votes to repeal Obamacare, the president turned towards the audience of teen and tween boys and told them that he would fire the Secretary of Health and Human Services if he didn't get the votes on board. It's very nice that the president could find individuals to talk to who are of his emotional maturity level, but describing your plans to fire a full-grown man to 40,000 teenagers is not exactly what we would call mature. The rest of the speech was no better, with the president going off on barely-hinch rants about the need for loyalty in his administration and the size of the crowd and how great it was that he won the states of West Virginia and Michigan and Wisconsin and all sorts of other things. I don't often say things like this, but I think the president should take up drinking. When he's sober, he sounds like that one great-uncle everybody has who shows up for a half-hour on Thanksgiving and says something about the Martians stealing his Social Security checks. I feel like maybe the alcohol will level him out a little bit. Let's try that, shall we? Speaking of. oh, that's good. Which leads us to Scaramucci. I... I just need... Scaramucci, or The Mooch, as apparently his nickname goes, is paid by the United States government to speak, to coordinate with the press, to craft a message that the American people will comprehend and hopefully support. Instead of doing that, he spent most of the week talking about his co-workers' ding-dongs. Let's jump back to Wednesday, where Anthony Scaramucci tweeted out that his financial disclosure info had been maliciously leaked to the press, an action which was a felony, and that he would be contacting the FBI and the Justice Department, hashtag swamp. At the end of that little tweet, he tagged Chief of Staff Rhys Priebus. Everyone took this as a pretty clear threat. It seems Scaramucci was publicly declaring that he thought Priebus was the leaker who had sent this classified information to the public, a felonious activity. Except, uh, financial disclosures are public information, and, uh, Scaramucci's financial disclosure was released by the government in accordance with federal law. Scaramucci quickly deleted the tweet after this was pointed out to him, and of course spent the rest of the week in quiet contemplation that he screwed up incredibly badly on, like, his fourth day of work. Oh, wait, no. He immediately went on CNN and gave a crazy interview in which he compared himself and Reese Priebus to brothers like Cain and Abel, you know, the first murderer and the first murder victim. Later on in that same interview, Scaramucci said, quote, there are people inside the administration that think it's their job to save America from this president. That's not their job, Unquote. This was an incredibly heartening thing for me to hear. There are people inside the administration trying to save America from the president. That's wonderful, except you already know how this story is going to end. Scaramucci was calling out Reese Priebus, and well... Reese Priebus and all of his followers are gone. But let's talk about that later. First, let's continue with the crazy. Before any of that happened, Scaramucci called a reporter for The New Yorker, Ryan Lizza, and he vented to him, on the record, about everyone else in the Trump administration. See, Scaramucci wanted to know who leaked to Lizza the fact that he had dinner with Donald Trump and Melania Trump the previous evening. He told them that as an American citizen, as a patriot, he needed to give the name of that person up, and when Lizard refused to do that, Scaramucci, well, vented. He told him that, quote, what I want to do is fucking kill all the leakers, and I want to get the president's agenda on track so we can succeed for the American people. That's not great. Threatening to kill people, uh, as a federal employee, generally speaking, not what you want to do. He then went on to talk about how much he hated Reese Priebus and a number of other people on the staff, including his own communications staff, and then he started to deliver the really good stuff, saying, quote, I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to suck my own cock. Now, that's a hell of a sentence. Not only is it wildly vulgar, but it's also a declaration of war. Remember, there are four factions in the White House. The Establishment Republicans, led by Reese Priebus, the New Yorkers, led by Jared and Ivanka, the Establishment Types, led by the Secretaries of State and Defense, and of course the Nationalists, the Bannonites, led by Steve Bannon. The Bannonites all came from the Breitbart, alt-right news world. They're publicity hounds communications director is calling Steve Bannon out in an incredibly disgusting public way. The Bannonites are not the only ones Scaramucci went after. He also decided to attack the establishment Republican National Committee members in the administration, calling Reese Priebus a paranoid schizophrenic. He then went on to accuse him of being a cockblock, largely because Priebus and Spicer prevented him from getting hired for six months because they thought he was <laughs> unstable. Reese Priebus and Sean Spicer were completely and utterly correct. And then again, that might be exactly what Donald Trump wants. After all, after Scaramucci went ahead and said all of these crazy, crazy, crazy things, Donald Trump proceeded to, well, do nothing except for fire Reese Priebus. And that brings us to the end of the RNC faction in the White House. That's right. Reese Priebus is now the shortest lived chief of staff in American history history. It seems, at least according to Scaramucci, that he was trying to protect this country from this president, which means that in many ways he is a patriot. On the other hand, he did help Donald Trump get elected. I really can't forgive you for that one, Reese. You swam into the canal. You didn't have to. You knew the waters were probably toxic. There was probably 10 feet of black mayonnaise hiding underneath the surface, but you went ahead anyway because, well, you were a political hack. And now you are going to suffer for it. It was inevitable, really. With Spicer gone, Priebus had no basis of support any longer. The RNC establishment faction in the White House is dead. The last of their followers will be purged by Scaramucci before, well, you're done listening to this. Without Priebus as a stabilizing force, there are only three factions left in the White House. The New Yorkers, the Bannonite nationalists, and the Axis of Adults. Who will be left at the end? It seems to have turned into a reality TV show. I'm sure the president is thrilled. He actually understands reality TV, unlike all of the other aspects of his job. Golly, look at the time. It's about that moment when we take a break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you, sponsors. That brings us to the outrage of the week. Now, before I begin, I'm going to read you a brief list of events going on around the world to give us some frame of reference for this week's outrage. China and India currently have 3,000 troops apiece on their borders arguing over where China and India begin and end. In 1962, China and India went to war with one another over a very similar plot of land, and the escalation in the region is causing people to get very concerned. North Korea fired another ICBM. This one landed in Japanese waters. With a little more advancement... This could theoretically hit the United States of America, California, Chicago, New York. Iran launched a satellite into orbit, something we didn't know that they could do, and then sent a ship so close to an American boat in the Persian Gulf that we actually fired warning shots at them. There is currently rioting going on on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. A number of Israeli police officers were killed at a holy site at Temple Mount. The Israeli government responded by putting metal detectors, and those metal detectors were such an affront to the Palestinian people that, well, they're rioting right now. Russian troops have pushed further into Syria. They're now in South Syria, in theoretically rebel-controlled territories, performing police actions. Into all of this... We have the United States of America, a world where the sharks are smelling the blood in the water, and chaos is starting to reign more and more. The president's response to all of this, to a world in which India and China are inching towards war, in which the Iranians are launching satellite testing American resolve in the Persian Gulf, a world in which rioting is occurring in Jerusalem, and the Russians are continuing to play God in Syria. What does the president do? Well, he bans transgender people from the military. It's a bit like being on a beach, seeing the wave of a tsunami coming towards you, looking at the person next to you, and complaining about the color of their bathing suit. Don't we have other things we could be dealing with right now instead of this ridiculousness? The idea that we're wasting time attacking individuals who want to fight and die for the United States government instead of, I don't know... Any of the other 10,000 things we should be dealing with is absurd. Senator John McCain, Republican from Arizona, and Senator Richard Shelby, Republican from Alabama, both went after Trump for this, putting out statements that essentially say, so long as an individual meets readiness standards for the United States military, they should be able to serve, and I agree with that. If an individual is currently undergoing some sort of mental trauma, if they don't know who they are, if they're actively questioning their current gender identity, absolutely don't put them in frontline military capacity. The same way you wouldn't put an individual who was undergoing any other major mental trauma in a frontline military capacity. But the people we're talking about aren't actively going through that trauma. They're individuals who have already transitioned from one gender to another. Now, I will admit, the idea that gender is mutable makes me kind of uncomfortable. I cannot imagine how terrible it would be to wake up one day and suddenly feel like I didn't belong in my body. That, possibly more than anything else, makes me uncomfortable about the whole situation you know what else makes me kind of uncomfortable? Tattoos. Piercings. Extraordinarily tall people. People who are really into feet. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to try and stop people with tattoos or body piercings or who are very tall or who like feet from fighting and dying for the United States government. Because even if I don't like those things, they're still putting their life on the line so that I don't have to. I hate needles. The idea of them makes me wildly uncomfortable. If I have to get a shot or have blood drawn, I start hyperventilating and laughing like the Joker. It is an extreme reaction. But my extreme dislike for needles doesn't make me want to ban vaccines or blood transfusions. My Discomfort should not dictate policy for the United States government, nor should the discomfort of anyone else. But I don't think this policy was actually driven by Donald Trump's dislike, or even confused discomfort transgender people. No, it seems that this policy was driven by impulse funding for gender reassignment service in the United States military has become something of a stumbling block in the delivery of the president's new budget. Included in that budget is the funding for his much-desired border wall. When members of the more conservative branch of the House Republicans came to the president and asked him to get involved with this fight because House leaders like Paul Ryan refused to strip funding for gender reassignment from the military budget, Donald Trump just went ahead and banned all transgender people from the military. House social conservatives came to Donald Trump complaining that they stubbed their toe and his solution was to amputate the lower half of their bodies. They asked him to help them light a candle and he dropped napalm on their house. When the Turks invaded the Holy Land, the Byzantine Emperor asked the Pope for an elite force of 400 knights to help defend Byzantine territory. Pope Urban II responded by starting the Crusades. This is essentially what Donald Trump has done. Massive, uncalled for, unasked for escalation for what was, frankly, a fairly minor problem in the Congress. The president made this announcement about banning transgender people from the military without consulting the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State because they were both on vacation at the time. He did it without telling his press shop. He did it without telling the other members of the government. He didn't tell the Congress. When reporters seeking clarity on this issue called the Department of Defense, they sent them back to the White House saying they had no answers. At the White House press briefing, when the new press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, was asked about this, She said to go back to the Pentagon. When reporters pointed out the Pentagon told them to ask the White House, she threatened to shut down the press briefing unless they stopped asking her questions about the major announcement that her boss just made. It's a bit like telling your spouse you want a divorce, and then when they ask you why, saying, well, if you keep asking that, I'm going to divorce you. The only sputtering half-answer that Sarah Huckabee Sanders could give out was that it, quote, erodes military readiness and unit cohesion, unquote, to have transgender people in the military. Which is amazing, because that's the exact same line they use to prevent African Americans and women and gay people from serving in the military. On a somewhat related note, did you know that in the 1990s, Mike Pence wrote an article for his local Indianapolis newspaper in which he claimed the movie Mulan was propaganda propaganda? trying to convince people to let women into the military, he actually wrote that he felt victimized by it. He felt victimized by the movie Mulan. Yeah, yeah, he wrote that. It's it's a thing that you can go read. I advise you to do it. It's insane. But let's recap. Donald Trump, on a knee-jerk reaction, decided to ban a whole group of people from the military who wanted to serve their country in opposition to members of his own party in Congress and the military and didn't bother to figure out what that policy entailed before sending it out to the whole nation via his Twitter account. And this actually brings us to the single scariest part of all of this, which is the president's use of Twitter. Now, I've complained about the president's use of Twitter before. It is a symptom, not a root cause. But here, it actually got a little bit dangerous. I'm going to read to you the actual tweets the president sent out. and We're going to see where the horror comes in. At 9.55 a.m., he tweeted, quote, After consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Thank you. Here's the problem. First tweet, sent at 9.55. Second, nine minutes later, third, four minutes later. I read them all together in one lump. The first tweet just reads, after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised the United States government will not accept or allow dot dot dot. Sources in the Pentagon indicated that panic overtook that organization as they were worried the president was declaring war on North Korea over Twitter. You see, they've been trained that the president will typically launch new policies without warning any of the individuals involved, so the president might have jumped 12 or 13 steps ahead of the Pentagon and the State Department and simply decided to announce that he was going to declare war on North Korea over Twitter. And if he did that, would you be shocked? Would that surprise you? Wouldn't surprise me, not in the least. It wouldn't surprise anyone working at the Pentagon. It wouldn't surprise anyone working at the White House. The president is unhinged. His knee-jerk response to every situation and tendency to simply wing his response to anything that comes his way, he didn't consult any generals about this. He didn't consult the congressional leaders. He didn't consult anybody. He just simply launched into a decision without actually thinking through any of the consequences. This is awful. This is bad. This is going to eventually get people killed. We are swimming in 10 feet of black mayonnaise and there's a whole bunch of people just staring at it, wondering what they should do. Well, I think it's about time for us to talk about some good news. The health care bill. That's right. We made it to minute 26 or so of the podcast without me talking about the health care bill yet. A lot of stuff happened this week. Please stop happening stuff. I, I can't take it. We just calm down, please just few fewer things. That's all. Well, healthcare bill failed. Well, it actually failed a couple of times. Let's go through this very, very quickly. John McCain comes rushing back after his brain cancer surgery to vote for something called a motion to proceed, a motion for them to debate the healthcare bill. Collins and Murkowski already declared against the motion. McCain needed to pass it. You need 50 Republican senators. There are only 52 of them, with Collins and Murkowski sustaining incredible pressure to change their vote, but holding the line. That means he needed all 50 of the other Republicans to hold together. John McCain comes back, motion to proceed. We're finally going to get to vote on these health care bills. First one they vote on, the Better Care Reconciliation Act. This was Mitch McConnell's baby. This was the big Obamacare repeal nine Republican senators voted no. So they tried again, another vote, this time for what's called a straight repeal, just get rid of everything they possibly can under Senate rules. Seven no's. Then they went for something called a skinny repeal. This would repeal some of the more unpopular elements of Obamacare, but in doing so, it would leave the publicly traded markets essentially to collapse over the next year. That looked like it might squeak through, Murkowski and Collins, once again, sustaining incredible pressure, still known, voted no on everything. But at the last moment, John McCain comes into the chamber, puts a thumbs down, yells out that he's voting no, and then walks out again, dooming the repeal effort. Now, lots of senators didn't like this law. As a matter of fact, lots of senators who voted for it didn't like it. But the idea was they needed to pass something so they could go into a reconciliation committee with the House of Representatives, work out a bigger compromise. Then again, The House voted on a bill they didn't like in the hopes that the Senate would fix it. Now the Senate was being asked to vote on a bill that they didn't like so that the House and the Senate together could fix it. In essence, the Republicans have no idea what they're doing. And who can blame them? For decades, the Republicans were working on a health care plan, a proposal that would fix what they saw as most of the problems in the system. In the 1990s, they had a chance to test this out. In Massachusetts, of all places, Mitt Romney took all the best ideas from the Heritage Foundation and a bunch of other conservative think tanks, and they put together a program that became known as Romney Care. And then Barack Obama got elected president. And he stole the damn thing. Obamacare is based on Republican ideas, the best Republican ideas that we had, frankly. For the last seven years, the Republicans have been wandering around trying to figure out how to both insure more people and create a plan that's somehow more conservative while insuring more people than Obamacare. They're not going to be able to do it. The best option the Republicans have is trying to fix the existing plan, probably by getting assistance from the Democrats. That actually looks more likely today than it has at any point over the last seven years. And that is the good news. Which brings us to our final segment, How to Look Smart This Week. And here it is, the best advice I'm ever going to give you. Here's how you look smart this week. Keep your damn mouth shut. If there's anything we've learned from what's happened this week, being quiet is the best way not to look like a moron. Also, stay out of the Gowanus Canal. (laughs) Holy crap, we made it. That's the show. Special thanks to my producer, Jonathan, and ACAST. Remember, ACAST for all your podcasting needs. ACAST, making good stories great. If you'd like to contact us, we are R I E podcast at Gmail, R I E podcast on Twitter and Republican in Exile on Facebook. Send me your questions, your comments, your concerns, your queries. I will respond to your absolute insanity with absolute insanity of my own. On August 13th, our impeachment special will come out. It will be longer than a half an hour. Will it be 45 minutes? Will it be an hour? I've got no idea. I'm lucky I made this one in a half an hour. Do you realize how much stuff happened this week? There's a bunch of stuff we didn't talk about. Uh, General Kelly replacing uh, uh, Priebus. McConnell and Ryan's future careers. The tax plan. Fracking. Uh, The fact that Jared Kushner went out and praised the dictator of Turkey the other day as being a man trying to make Turkey great again. Uh, It was nuts. But it's over now. So I don't have to worry about it. Oh, God. But yeah, impeachment special. uh, August, it'll be more than half an hour. You'll enjoy it. So until next week. Try not to die. You breathe